welcome back to Commodity Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the team from Mercado.com.au. We are a team of agricultural market analysts, and we like to use data to form opinions on markets and the general agricultural space. These informal conversations are generally long-form discussions, about 20 to 40 minutes long, where we discuss events or factors in the agricultural space with a particular bias towards Australian agriculture. These discussions are either with our internal team of analysts or they are with some special guests. We hope you enjoy the conversation and gain some insights. If you've got any questions or if you want to suggest some ideas to us, please get in contact in the usual places, on, on email, on Twitter, wherever you uh, follow us. Uh, before we jump into it, I just want to say a big thank you to one of our supporters. Without our supporters, this wouldn't be possible. Today's podcast supporter is Cleaver's Meat. For a long time, Cleaver has been well known for producing fantastic quality meat raised on good Australian farms. Quality has always been at the centre of their business. And they've made a big change now. As well as offering the normal prime cuts, you know, your steaks, etc. They've actually moved into convenient ready meals. We don't always have the time to do, you know, a nice big slow-cooked roast or, you know, steak and veggies. And sometimes we've just got to get something quick and tasty. And uh, this is a good thing they've moved into uh, uh, convenient ready meals because we know the quality that they've taken with their prime cuts will be transitioned into these ready meals. So you can actually get something that is good and healthy. For example, they've got some pretty good beef hot dogs, chicken nuggets, and a new lasagna that you can just shove in the oven and it's ready, you know, 20 minutes later. So if you've not got much time on your hands and you want something uh, quick and tasty to eat, then definitely look up uh, Cleaver's Organic Products. Uh, you can get them in all the usual places, Coles, Willie's, and those uh, independent stores. So let's just get on to the conversation. Welcome back to another Commodity Conversation. This week, talking about African swine fever and the porcapolips now. Uh, it'll be myself, Andrew Whitelaw, and our livestock analyst, Matt Dalglish, uh, talking about this outbreak of swine fever and how it's going to impact upon Australian agriculture. Uh, thanks, Andrew, and um, g'day to all the vi- uh, listeners. So, Matt, you've been looking at, uh, well, we've both been looking at this a lot for really the last oh, almost a year now since the first outbreak in China. But for, for our listeners, you know, what is, what is swine fever and what is it and how does it get transmitted? Yeah, look, it, it's a... A virus that's been around for some time. Um, obviously, uh, the name gives you the clue. Coming out of Africa, uh, it's made its way through Europe, and it's it, in recent times it's um, it's popped up in um, in China and, and other parts of Southeast Asia. So, it's a virus that affects pigs. Um, I think it's important to stress straight away that it's not something that's um, problematic for humans, and indeed. Um, you know, human uh, consumption of product that's got the AZF virus in it isn't isn't uh, a health concern for humans, um, but certainly for pigs. So, um, virus-wise, it's a it's a significant problem, um, largely because of the um, the power of the virus to or the mortality rate, I guess, that the virus um, has. It's a, for a pig that's infected with the virus, uh, you're looking at uh, mortality rates of over ninety percent. Uh, and the time frame at which um, the pigs uh, die in those circumstances is within seven to ten days. So it's a fairly fast-acting virus. Um, from the perspective of um, contact to contact, it, it, it is a, it does require direct contact. So it's not an airborne virus of that nature, like a, a traditional cold and flu type thing that can be passed through, um, you know, carried. Um, 
uh, this one has to be contact to contact. So usually it's um, pig to pig, uh, but it can be obviously other other host carriers such as um, rodents and ticks. Um, but it can also live in um, in non-living products. So uh, both actual pork product, whether it's um, frozen or fresh or cured product, uh, and it can, and can live in um, in dust and feces within a within an area where pigs have been habitating. So most people would think that viruses and whatnot generally get killed when you cook something or when you when you've effectively treated it and you know most people would expect that with you know dried and salted foods that it'll be gone but that's not the case no certainly not with the with those um cured products it's um it still remains and i have heard particularly for say a frozen product um it can last in frozen product for up to uh, a thousand days Uh, so you're talking significant um, amounts of time so if you've got that sort of that issue of uh, it staying in the food, so that's obviously why we've got a ban on swinf- swill feeding in this country, both both obviously for African swine fever, but also uh, food and mouth disease. But there was an interesting um, thing coming out of the Ukraine from their Livestock Producers Association, which they've actually uh, said that they want African swine fever infected meat to be allowed to be sold. What do you think of that? What would that be in terms of virus implications for ongoing outbreaks? Yeah, look, it's, that's something like that would be fraught with disaster. I can imagine uh, because of the uh, the strength of the virus and how much it kills and the impact it does have on production in, in certain countries, I could imagine uh, for some that have uh, some food security issues and uh, and concerns around that space that that to see a lot of pork or, or pigs be slaughtered and a lot of pork be disposed of uh, for, for essentially a virus that's not harmful to humans. I can understand the reasoning, but um, from a biosecurity perspective, you're just asking for trouble. Um, and that's one of the concerns, I guess, when you're focusing on China and look at, at what's happened there and what may happen in the future, um, even for those areas that are, have, have tried to eradicate or are eradicating the virus and culling significant numbers of pigs. Um, the fact that it's got um, that level of, um, of, I guess, even a virus sense you call it, virility, uh, that can live outside a host for a significant amount of time makes it problematic because if you don't get rid of all that product and that product stays around and, and the virus therefore stays active and alive, it could pop up, you know, you've cleaned an area and, and six months down the track it could pop up again. Just reinfection after reinfection, which becomes, you know, a massive issue if you're trying to control it. And, and get your biosecurity protocols back in place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, you just think of you know, the amount of time and effort you go through, you, the culling of animals, if you're not using that product as well, you've got a, a, a significant drop in production there. And then you clean out you, all the time and effort to clean out and get hopefully get rid of the virus. And then, you know, you, you go and purchase more pigs, bring them in, and, and then if it's still retained in, in other product that's elsewhere, you're going to pop up in six months' time, a year's time, two years' time. And that, that, that pig eats a bit of leftover salami sandwich and then there you go. Oh, seven days later it's, it's uh, all over Red Rover. That's it. Yeah. So looking at, you know, it's a big issue, African swine fever, obviously in China at the moment, and it's called African swine fever, but, you know, most of the outbreaks have not actually been in Africa. It originated there, but... Most of the press is all about what's happening in China, but whereabouts is it just now? Like it's in Europe. Yep, it's throughout Europe. Um, massive amounts of uh, impacts in some of those Eastern European Eastern countries. Europe, yeah, Eastern Europe definitely is the areas that have been. And impacted. I think in July we saw you know numbers go from sort of double digits to the high triple digits between June and July, and a lot of that was from smallholders. You know, one pig in the backyard as opposed to commercial commercial piggeries. But obviously, the you know the attention has been 
put on African swine fever now because it's in China. What, why is this such a big impact? Yeah, I guess um, the the significant uh, impact in China is a uh, it's the biggest uh, pig herd in in the world in China. Um, you're talking something like uh, up until recent times, I guess. Um, you're talking about 440 odd million head of pig out of a total world population of 800 or so million. Um, so you know the biggest herd in in in, in the world in China um, within the Chinese uh, diet as well for. Uh, meat proteins, uh, the pork product takes over 60% of, of their um, annual consumption, okay, their consumption, I guess, uh, of different protein types. So um, big herd and a, and a big amount of uh, reliance within China on, on pork meat as a, um, as a protein source. Uh, so that's you know, part of the, the reason why it's becoming incredibly um, problematic over there. So the year of the pig in China, probably one of the uh, they wish they never named it that year. But so, how is impact in China so far? Like, what's the what's the estimates? Yeah, well, this is interesting, and, and what's made the, the last month, I guess, re- really important because um, the first outbreak was August of um, two thousand and eighteen, uh, and obviously it spread reasonably quickly, uh, you know, across China. Um, up until recently, the official Chinese um, uh, reports f- f- from from government sources there was nothing um, to see here. Nothing to, <laughs> effectively, nothing to see here it was. Uh, I think up until very recently, it was about a million or so head of pigs. Um, and it's interesting if you contrast their original um, statements made about about the impact of the of the virus and the cull. Um, you had over a number of months, you know, nearly six months or so, they were saying only a million head or so. Uh, and yet, when it, when the outbreak spread to Vietnam, uh, you had within a matter of weeks four million or something, yeah, three or four million within a matter of weeks that the Vietnamese had, had admitted to. Whereas in China, a much bigger herd and a, and probably the distribution um, across that area is just as easy as spreading through Vietnam. But yet, the Chinese were saying, um, yeah, only nothing, I mean, nothing I mean, to see here. Yeah. Um, and so recently the, the official word has actually come out now that they have acknowledged uh, a reduction in their breeding sow population. I think it's around 35 or 36% for this year. Um, and that's obviously having implications now for their pork production for this year as well. So some of the estimates uh, we're looking at in terms of um, loss of, of, of numbers of, of pigs uh, out of their overall herd is, is some something to the tune of 200 million head of pig by the end of this year. Uh, and that's uh, likely to have an impact on production of uh, losses of around 40% of their production. Um, in, 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 in actual volume size, you're talking of something like 20 million tonne of pork. So going back to the, I guess, the Chinese whispers or not knowing the numbers, but I reckon one of the things you can always bank on is that markets never lie. And, you know, we saw that we collect pig prices in China. And we've got pig prices from most cities in China, or most major cities. And you saw, you know, the start of the year, the market for Chinese pigs was actually at the bottom end of the expected range. So pig prices is actually incredibly low. And then all of a sudden in June, it's just been a miraculous sort of stratospheric rise week on week. And even this week, up another 12% on the previous week so I think that kind of gives you an indication when the market is rising so high that well supply must have been either demands shot up massively in the last six months or supply has been you know eradicated so you know why you got any insights into why those prices didn't rise at the start of the year 
Oh uh, yeah, well, curiously, like you said, that, that initial uh, virus uh, first 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 came out in China in August of 2018, and for the, for the last bit of um, 2018, prices, as you said, remained quite low as well. There was a bit of a, a bit of a, a rush or reports on the ground that there was a, a rush of culling that occurred then with people that suspected their animals may have had the virus or had the virus, and they were trying to um, kill quickly and then and then get them to market to get some value from them. Uh, so, so we did see prices remain low for the for the balance of 2018, and it took a little bit of time then to filter through. Um, one of the key reasons, I, I guess, was as the virus started to spread significantly across China, and the authorities realised the the magnitude of what they were facing, they started to place some sig- significant restriction on Done the movement of yeah, movement yeah. Of, of pigs around, and indeed the movement of product. Uh, from from province to province and region to region. So um, within China, there are parts of the country that have a higher uh, a population of pigs being grown and some that don't have as many. So um, in normal market conditions, you can balance out the, the product across that. Um, but what we're finding was that uh, there were areas of China that were having significant shortages impacting upon uh, the local market or region, and, and that was part of... Um, the spikes in those prices. Um, I think it was something to add too, and I guess from an external perspective, looking at some of the trade Australia sends to China, that and that, you know, those that have been looking at Mercado regularly would have seen we've been talking about this ASF for you know before before this year started, um, certainly. But um, we w- watched very closely at the start of this year uh, what was happening with regards to Australian exports of uh, of beef and lamb and mutton. And we were noticing that um, we were seeing significantly higher uh, levels of Chinese demand for all of those products and indeed for for products coming from other importing nations uh, like you know, New Zealand and uh, and uh, South American countries that are sending product to China. Uh, we were noticing increases in their volumes that were over and above what you'd expect for the normal uh, expected growth in Chinese population and wealth. And, and we were putting that down to this um, this growing shortage of pork product. I guess that's the thing. All ag commodities tend to be fairly replaceable with one another. So if you take pork out of the equation, then it has to be replaced with something. And with a fairly wealthy population, you know, the protein source gets replaced with another protein source. Mm-hmm. And so we are seeing that with mutton then. Yes, definitely. What, yeah. So, you know, anyone who listens to what we've been saying in months or reading articles will have seen that mutton prices have risen pretty sharply. What about beef? Uh, yes, so we've had uh, increases across the board. Beef uh, has been a steady rise through the year. If you look at the the monthly um, seasonal uh, movement of, of exports to China from Australia, uh, it started the year fairly strong, uh, above average and above the normal range. But um, over the, the year, it's been steadily increasing and uh, such that most recently through our winter, um, we've seen a couple of peaks in volumes of beef product exported to China that are now um, have put have put China for the month on month, certainly the last two months, they've had the highest volumes of any country. Um, so they've, they've actually um, outstripped Japan, which is our number one, or traditionally our number one export market. In the last two months, the Chinese volumes have been higher than Japan. Um, if you if you look at the broader um, the broader figures, I guess across the whole of uh, of, of the of the year, um, at the start of two thousand eighteen or the end of two thousand. Um, sorry, the end of 2018, I should say, uh, started 2019, um, China was sitting in, in fourth spot as our biggest export market for beef. And just within this year, they've gone uh, from fourth spot to, to second spot. 
but like I said, those last two months, they've sat in first spot on a month-on-month basis. Uh, if they continue at that level for the rest of the year, I wouldn't be surprised by the end of this year that number, um, China becomes our number one beef export nation. And to go from fourth spot to one to first spot within the space of a year Six is, is remarkable, yeah. absolutely remarkable. What about pricing? Like, Obviously, you've got that impact on volumes going overseas to China. Is it being reflected on the pricing back to the farmer or is it getting... You know, effectively, you know, because we've obviously got that sell-off in in the drought sell-off in cattle. Are we seeing it in prices? The farmers getting it at the marketplace. Yes, yeah, so certainly. Um, some of the export demand for for beef, there, there would be some of it that is being. Um, uh, in terms of far, back to the farm or sale yard, sale yard price, um, there's an impact there. We, we have seen, if you look at our processor margin model uh, that we have here at Mercado, we have seen that processors are making in the beef space, they're making good money, and that's a, probably not just an ASF-related factor, but certainly it's um, it's one of the factors that's keeping um, the offshore price uh, of beef elevated. Uh, and, and it's not flowing back as much to the farm gate or to the sale yard um, because we have been seeing some high-level high yeah, high yeah. of cattle turnoff. Uh, but in saying that, though, I mean, if you contrast this season and the drought we've seen in Queensland and New South Wales and that's those high level of turnoff, prices are still pretty good if you contrast it back to the 14, 15 uh, seasons when we saw... Yeah, the last drought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the last drought and, and, and significant levels of turnoff there. Um, you know, we had a... Uh, back then we, we had... A series where you know local prices around the 350 to, to maybe 380 cents a kilo carcass weight for you know cattle uh and and they were quite um they're quite suppressed uh, domestically and, and overseas they were up to you know over 600 cents a kilo uh but but this season, you know, we're, we're looking at um, finished cattle still still being able to maintain around that five dollar uh, level, uh, which is you know certainly certainly um, a good price from a historical perspective. But had we not been turning off so much, we might have been seeing the price uh, increased. And I guess maybe this is a subject for another podcast, but we'll, we'll maybe talk about it later. But there will be a big impact when it does rain yeah, that's on, right. on cattle prices. But we'll. Totally, totally we'll, separate, we'll keep uh, that from a different podcast. Uh, and so go, let's go back to mutton as well. So China's gone from, you know, number four in terms of beef exports to potentially number one by the end of this year. Yep. What about mutton? Uh, well, mutton, we've looked at uh, actually combined flows of, of mutton and lamb uh, in that space and looked at you know, percentages over the last um, five years or so. Um, if you if you take China as a um, one of our key export nations, certainly for mutton and lamb, the five year average in, in terms of flows, they're sitting in the top spot at twenty percent. So that so that the mutton that goes out, mutton and lamb that goes out of Australia is twenty percent of that goes to China. Um, and if you look at just this year, um, the two thousand nine year. Uh, it's they're now sitting at thirty percent. So so far this year, you so know, what's, year our date, dom- what's our domestic demand in Australia? Uh, domestic demand, the average over the last five years is thirty one percent. So, so China's this, this nearly, year, China's nearly, nearly more important yeah, than domestic exactly market. nearly as big nearly as big as our domestic market for combined. And I mean that's a bit when you're looking at combined combined mutton and lamb. Um, clearly, there's not a big um, mutton domestic demand. mutton demand here now in, within within Australia. Um, but uh, and so yeah, the bulk of that thirty-one percent of uh, of domestic uh, uh, consumption is taken up by lamb by a long stretch. 
but if you look at it as a, as a you know, uh, as you said before, Andrew, the substitutability of product and, and from a broader economics perspective, uh, it doesn't happen so much in Australia, but, but there is quite a bit of substitution that goes on uh, overseas between mutton and lamb. Yep. Uh, so we combine those two, and, and, and that's, again, within itself significant where you've got, um, you know, five-year average at 20%, and now just this year they're now at 30%, and that's a huge, huge growth, and, and particularly if you look at... Um, the seasonal pattern for lamb and mutton in terms of export flows out of Australia and into China. Um, we had a bit of a dip through winter, which is not uncommon. We, you get some dips in volumes just because of the high prices we have in Australia um, for lamb and mutton through winter. And obviously the, the low supply that exists then as well, um, just from a, uh, a production perspective. But um, now that we're starting to see uh, prices come off a little bit from those winter peaks uh, and and a bit more uh, availability with uh, looking towards the spring flush of lamb, we have seen uh, increases both for lamb and, and mutton exports into China. But mutton's been the big one. Um, since July to September, we've seen mutton in- imports increased uh, 208% uh, into China, which is just a huge, uh, huge jump back. And and traditionally, um, mutton to China, the bulk of it goes in the last quarter of the year. So, what we've seen so far, we, we might it might be might still the, like the best might be yet to come. Exactly. So, I guess as well as beef and mutton, the obvious one is is pork because you know if if there's a lack of of pork in China, surely there's going to be demand from for Australian pork. But that's not the case because we don't have any biosecurity protocols. That's right. In the pork. Yeah, that's right. I mean, from the perspective of both the Australian pork industry and I guess the Australian pork consumer, um, the bigger impact, I, I suppose, is, uh, is a, a bit of a substitution effect from the sense of, um, you know, within Australia, we have a significant amount of imported um, cured pork product that Just comes in. below 50% yep. of cured products are brought in. Yep. So... Um, Certainly what we're hearing at this stage, we haven't seen it on the ground in terms of changes uh, at the retail level, um, but we are hearing anecdotally through some of our supply chain contacts that there are some concerns about being able to access some of this imported product that comes into Australia, imported pork products. Yeah, so, so what I've heard is that when uh, when buyers will be going out to pick up uh, small goods from the likes of Denmark and Netherlands and Germany and other European exporters, they basically had the door shut on them and said, it's all gone to China, guys are too late. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you pay because it's already been sold. So I guess that's, you know, for Australian pork producers, it's not the fact that it's going to go into China. It's just the fact that these other products aren't going to come into Australia, yeah. which, which is going to be a big impact on uh, on those small, small goods, really, and things like bacon, which is extensively... Uh, produce overseas. Yeah, that's right, and that's the thing we haven't yet. We're yet to see that play out. Certainly at the at the retail level, um, I wouldn't be surprised as we come towards the end of the year within Australia that we start to see less imported um, small goods and bacon's and salamis on on the shelves at your local supermarket. And and obviously there will still be the Australian product there, but um, most likely going to be a bit more expensive as we come into Christmas. That's potentially the at case. least at least for mm. our small goods, our fresh goods, it might not necessarily make that much problem. To our, to our actual sort of our pork roast no, that's type of right. Christmas. No, that's Because that was always 100% Australian anyway, anything on the bone. Mm. And I think that's, I mean, just taking another quick look at the at the macro from that perspective too, and it influ- it's something that impacts across 
a range of different um, meat proteins. As when we spoke before about the size of the protein gap uh, within China, that 20 million tons. Just to give the the listener a, a bit of an idea, the entire um, Australian sheep meat. Um, production per year is around the 700,000 tonne level and the entire Australian beef industry production is around 2 million tonne. Uh, so you, and that's the entire, not, not just what we export. Um, so it gives you a real scale that, that we're talking about a gap in the Chinese market of 10 times our entire beef industry production. Um, now, there's not, there's not a country in, in the world really, realistically, that's going to be able to fill that gap with, you know, with other things. Um, uh, so, you know, th- this is going to play out and, it, and the dynamic of this um, changed environment for global meat proteins is a, is a huge thing and I think it's only something that's beginning to dawn across markets and, and, and within supply chains uh, because this isn't a simple fix. Um, this virus, there's no, there's no uh, cure for this virus at this stage and, and like we'd spoken before about the ability for the virus. The yeah, the issue. reinfection that we could be looking at a, a changed environment for Chinese pork production that might extend out five to ten years in terms of recovery time to get back to a level where they have been recently and, and, that's, and that's if they can do that. It's a big question. Here's another start for you. If Australia was to provide 100% of the Australian pork production, so every single pig produced in Australia was to be sent to China, we would meet approximately three days, maybe slightly less, of China's entire demand. So we're just an insignificant speck on in terms of China's demand, which... So I don't see them looking to lift those biosecurity protocols anytime soon because we're just a minnow in comparison to to China. That's right. I think, um, I <clears> guess, <throat> from an Australian pork producer's perspective, the 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 real question is: is it going to get into Australia? You know, we've had it, we've had it um, jump across the uh, Indonesian archipelago fairly quickly, uh, and, and show up in Timor Leste, which is just on our border, and, and that's caused a bit of concern amongst um, both the farming community and 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 biosecurity uh, officials and politicians, and so we've now got a. Uh, our, our sniffer dog in Darwin Airport. It was a fairly quick, uh, quick reaction there to get that happening, which was excellent. Um, so you've got to commend the uh, agriculture minister there on, on such quick action to get that happening. Yeah, but I think that's also we can commend that, which is good. They've got a, uh, a dog up there, but when you look at the number of dogs, you know, specifically trained for biosecurity detection, you know, 2012 there was 80 dogs, 2018 43 dogs. And now 2019, 36 dogs. That's not a huge number of dogs when you consider we've, you know, more than half the number of dogs in the past, you know, seven years. And Maybe they're just getting better at uh, doing it, Andrew. Maybe better, but, you know, it's it's pretty concerning considering the number of tourists that come into into the country. And I think it's... I don't, partially, you know, it's a bit scary to think that's only 600 kilometres away in, in Timor-Leste, but is that a bit of a furphy? You know, it's 600 kilometres is no different from really 12,000 or 20,000 kilometres. Yeah. You still need to buy security where it's, whether the passengers are coming from Shanghai or Timor-Leste or... Bloody Tasmania. That's, yeah, that's right. Um, I th- Especially I think that's, Tasmania. 
<laughs> I think that's a, a good point, Andrew, as well, that um, the, the probably the most likely source of it coming into Australia is going to be, you know, at an airport. Um, and I think one of the one of the stats I'd heard as well just recently regarding that whole um, biosecurity risk and the importation of pork product was that um, since November of last year, um, seized at the border uh, has been something like 27 tonne of pork product, salted pork product, uh, brought in as small goods and other bits and bobs. And So, and that, so, so when you look at the actual stats over the course of time, 27 is about the average actually. 27 tonne for that period 27 tonnes per year Yeah, for things like salami and small goods stroke pork. So that actually works out at six pigs or six, 6.4 pigs actually per week coming into Australia equivalent of Yeah, in terms of, of product, rate. yeah. There was something, some other mention there that of that 27-odd tonne of product, they'd picked up ASF in 15% of it or something like that. Yeah, and that's why I think the reality is that ASF is already in the country. Well, it's, it's, it's got here, but it hasn't. It, it's it hasn't, already yeah. here, but it's just not impacted ahead. Yet it hasn't got out. It hasn't got out beyond the uh, the, the, the the kitchen of somebody in uh, <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs> I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can say it's uh, that you know it's in the country with. Uh, I mean, it has it has arrived. It hasn't. It may or may not have well, spread I, anywhere I think, else. I think if we found twenty seven tons in a year, I can almost guarantee we've not found one hundred percent of the meat coming in. Mm. Just like you know, we might find a lot of cocaine and heroin <laughs> but still a lot of it on the streets and you can still buy it in nightclubs in melbourne so mm, mm. you know whether there's a black market for illegal imported pork and it's still getting through mm. i would hazard a guess that it's here yeah look i mean technically speaking you're correct because it's made it to the to the to the airport um I guess the big question, and that's the concern uh, moving forward, is does it get out into the general population? And indeed, the biggest uh, threat is into the wild boar population. I think that's that's what we're obviously trying to avoid, um, if it can be contained I at the airport and, and stopped there effectively. And um, I think that's that's the the issue is that commercial piggeries, you know, have have ramped up their bar security in recent years. You know, and it's quite a costly exercise, but it but it's occurred. Uh, you know, it's it's increasing, but it really is a case of well, when that that sort of biosecurity is really an issue with the wild pigs, I reckon, and it'll be the likes of somebody taking sandwiches with pork that's a infected, hunter or something with it, yeah. a hunter mm. or even a tourist mm. just going through. You know, wherever there's a wild boar population, throwing, their, throwing, throwing the their, rubbish uh, off the side. pork jerky out <laughs> they on the side of the road, yeah. Their, uh, whatever kind of sausages it is. And that, that's a real risk. And I think because of that wild boar population or, or feral pig population, really, it is, you know, the risk of that, you know, then going into the actual uh, commercial supply chain. Mm. Mm. You know, I guess, the, the and and that's the, the, the worry, but I, I suppose um, on the... If you, if, you, if you concede that there's a fairly high chance, say, Andrew, that we're going to get it into the country, but then you say, well, okay, let's just hypothetically say it gets in there and it gets out into the wild boar population, um, what's the impact then? On, and you talk to a lot of um, pork uh, producers as part of your uh, specialisation in grains, of course, so you're, you've got your ear on the ground there with regards to their thoughts and, and knowledge around that industry. And, and uh, you know, I just wonder what... What would be the perception, or what your what's your view of how it's going to impact if it gets out into that wild boar population? Well, I've heard a number of different views. I was quite disappointed to hear some views from people not in the pork industry, definitely not from the pork industry. Uh, they said, "Well, okay, what's the pig industry worth? Maybe if we got swine fever, at least it would get rid of all the the wild feral pigs." 
I sort of think, well, are, you know, the value of the pork industry is probably not worth sacrificing it for, you know, killing the feral pig population. Is it? Uh, is it a? Do I hear? Is this right? It's a five billion dollar industry employing about thirty three thousand people. Is that, uh, is that give, or, give or take? Yeah, yeah. I, can, I can go into my Twitter account and find mm. it. But off the top of my head, that sounds about right. Mm. Um, I think the the big risk when you've got you know one of these type of events, if it gets into the wild boar population, gets into commercial piggeries, I think it would be slower to spread around commercial piggeries. Mm. It's we've learned a lot from food and mouth disease in the UK and in being able to track and trace and, and ensure that uh, the supply chains are, are not disrupted. And there's not as much farm-to-farm movement of pigs for a start or even yeah. staff members these days. So that's, that's one factor. Yeah. But there's two main factors, I think. You, if we have an outbreak of swine flu, you know, people, people don't trust science. So we can say it's not going to impact humans, but we would definitely see a drop in pork demand domestically because people would be concerned, oh, I'm not feeding that to my kids because I don't want them getting African swine fever. Mm. That's just a natural thing that people, parents will feel, regardless of whether it's true or not, and mm. regardless of how many veterinarians say, nah, you'll be fine. That will happen. Secondly, you know, I, I lived during the foot and mouth outbreak in uh, God's country of uh, Dumfries, which was the most heavily impacted area for foot and mouth disease in the UK. And I remember seeing funeral pyres. I remember walking past fields when soldiers were shooting cattle in the head. Back then, I don't think I even had a mobile phone. Nowadays, everybody's got a camera phone and blah, blah, blah. And it's live streams and whatnot. So you're going to have these very, very, this could be completely honest, distressing scenes being propagated throughout the internet. And we're seeing some of that in China. Mm. And they've got pretty good controls on their media. And we're seeing pretty distressing footage out there. And that will cause another raft of, you know, protests and activism from these Dominion movements or Aussie farm movements, just because you're going to have this access to thousands of hours of, you know, distressing footage, which farmers don't want to cull their animals. And uh, that's one effect. Yeah, I guess. I mean, from <coughs> my perspective... Um, but uh, we, we would also, on, on... It doesn't just affect... We've thought mainly about livestock, but, you know, if ASF is going to affect grain demand as well. And if we look at China, you know, the, if we look at the projections of feed demand... In China, it's potentially well upwards of 50 million tonnes of, of feed demand getting uh, taken out of the equation. And if you look at our exports in recent years, most of our barley has gone to China. Some of it's gone to malt. A lot of it's gone into feeding animals. So they will be reducing their their likely demand based on the numbers that are uh, you know forecast to be uh, to be culled. Mm. And, and the same would happen in Australia. Yeah, you know yeah. if we if we remove. Uh, pig demand, if we removed half of the demand from the country, then uh, we can see, uh, you know, a big drop in domestic uh, requirements from from pig producers, which are, you know, quite a good steady source of income for, for the grain, grain growers. Yeah, I guess that, and that, that's probably, Andrew, a worst case scenario. What what my in, in impression of, of how it may play out if it came into Australia, ASF, would be probably similar to the Western European uh, impact rather than the Eastern European or, or Southeast Asian impacts. Um, given that 
production methods and, and biosecurity uh, protocols within Australia are, are pretty strict as they are in places like Denmark and uh, and um, you know Germany and some of those countries that are that are big producers of pork internationally. Um, we have seen historically that the virus is in and around uh, Eastern and Western Europe, but we, we don't have the level of um, outbreak and impact on production in, say, a country like Denmark uh, that we've seen in, in, in other, say, Eastern European countries that have had outbreaks. Um, and I think that mirrors the production methods in some of those Eastern European countries are a lot more small-scale independent operators, uh, you know, potentially not necessarily paying as close attention to biosecurity as the bigger guys and, and potentially also engaging in practices like, like spill feeding that we see, you know, yeah, much yeah. more common in Southeast Asia as well. So, so some of those aspects would probably... Um, help to limit the spread within Australia. Certainly, it would impact the wild pig population. Um, I think operators that are that are in the pig industry that are in a free range operation might find um, a lot more risk in that in that methodology. But for some of the more commercial uh, intensive farms that have the pigs pretty much safely tucked away in a in a nice comfortable um, barn with straw and they frolic about and eat and drink and have a great old time. Um, those kind of operators that have got good biosecurity, I, I, I can't imagine how it's going to severely impact upon them. No, but free range, definitely. You know, you just you just see the access they have. It's it's probably too much, and it's not necessarily the most efficient method of producing pork either. Anyway, yeah, and I think the other thing to note on that comment when you mentioned too about F, foot and mouth um, disease made me think of. If we if we took a, a more optimistic view rather than looking at the worst case scenario for Australia and said, well, what's what's the impact if it doesn't get in here at all and we can maintain some level of ASF free status like we do with uh, foot and mouth disease, um, and and then indeed over time if we can look to grow the pork industry and to um, start up with protocols into places like China that, that potentially might have an ongoing gap for many years to come in their pork uh, requirements. It's a really great opportunity for for Australian agriculture to to take the lead there, and, and if we can maintain a status of, of ASF free, that's going to um, encourage a lot of money into the Australian pork sector to be able to, if we can get protocols into China, be able to um, increase our production. Uh, I mean, the, the pigs are a highly efficient. Uh, animal when it comes to to animal production methods uh, in terms of the the size of the litter they have and and the ability to to, to put kilos on fairly quickly in a, in a nice controlled environment uh, and I guess also the the yield that you get um, from a pig is, is is incredible compared to um, sheep and and cattle um, so it's it's a it's a fantastic opportunity uh, if we can keep it out yeah the other thing as well to remember is that pork farms that do have to cull they will all get compensation as well, but it's liable to not be able to cover the costs of ongoing operations. Mm. It's only likely to cut. It's only really going to recoup them the cost of those animals, not the lost production they'll have. And the time it'll take what twenty two months roughly yep. to get back to production. Yeah, if you've got the breeding stock. Yeah, so it's you know it's not good. We've got to keep it out. Yeah, there's no there's no benefits to getting it within the country. Uh, but I think it's it's going to be an ongoing thing. And what's your prediction? My, my view was, you know, talking to pork pork producers around the country has been, you know, four, you know, bottom bottom end four years for them to get back on track in China. For China, yeah. 
up to seven potentially. Yeah, look, I'm I'm a bit more pessimistic. I think we're looking more of a of a five to ten year span, uh, and and it's one of those things, I guess, that um, realistically for China to be able to manage the, it's now that it's there it's no getting rid of it let's let's be clear on that one um so it becomes a management um situation now and and i guess um the if the chinese government isn't one thing that they, they are good at, at, at organizing and having a long-term plan uh, which is what you can do um when you've got one party um so they if they make the decision that they're going to go down a path of, of more the western European model of, of pork production and they invest a lot of money into um, you know no more small small scale producers we're going to have you know these five ten or you know so big big operators big big commercial plants incredibly high biosecurity uh, restrictions and that that's probably the way they need to go to get back on track and, there's, and get, no, there's no way they're going to allow this to happen again and they will come on they'll have to change something mm. whether it's biosecurity or just the way they produce they're not going to allow you know, a potential food security uh, event like this to happen again. And, you know, this is having a big effect on their, their CPI and their overall cost of living. So mm. they, they, they've got to make sure that they, you know, keep it in check. We were at a, a conference this week, uh, you and I, Andrew, and there was a there was a fellow I was speaking to there that was um, uh, very involved in the pork industry and, and, and had, had spent quite a bit of time and continues to spend quite a bit of time in China and he made some really um, interesting points with regards to um, the, you know, the, the situation over in China. In terms of um, civil disobedience and saying that historically throughout Chinese history, the times uh, when they've had... Um, Issues around food security have always been the times when the general population have um, have looked to um, act in a manner that's um, change things up. Yeah, revolutionary, I guess, to a degree. Um, so that that's a a very big uh, concern, I think, for the for the Chinese government that they need to act uh, quickly on this and, and not allow it to um, continue to fester. And, and especially when you've got you know civil disobedience in Hong Kong, issues in other parts of China, and uh, even problems at basketball games now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it probably covers up that African swine fever is here to stay, and it's going to be what the biggest driver in agriculture, especially proteins, in ten yeah. years, twenty yeah. years easily. And um, yeah, we're going to see potentially heightened prices for all of our proteins for the coming years. And uh, yeah, it's probably once we get rains, it's probably going to be a good time. For the for those that have got uh, animals to uh, breed and uh, and the money to spend on buying uh, animals to increase your uh, your flock or your herd, depending upon uh, what space you're in, I suppose financing is pretty easy if there's a if there's a good opportunity out there. Yeah, certainly. I mean, look at the modelling we we did at Mercado across a lot of those commodities, beef and, and mutton and lamb. Even before the ASF had shown, uh, certainly for for mutton and lamb, that uh, the outlook was pretty good uh, and. Uh, now, now, if you take into account this um, this dynamic that's changing within the the global protein space, um, it's it's ramped up the uh, the strength of the or the future forecast for, for for demand coming out of certainly China, uh, and so you know some of that forecast modelling is looking even uh, more rosy if we take into account um, the potential uh, impact on 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 our um, on our export volumes. Um, because of, of the Chinese increase, so in we're probably just giving ourselves really a five-year head start. Yep. On, yep. on what was going to happen anyway. Correct. Yeah. And I guess when by the time China gets it, you know, back up on back on up on its legs, 
the demand will have increased by that time as well. Mm. So we may not see a, a kind of a blip where suddenly things change around. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I guess um, uh, from from the Chinese perspective too, when we talk about them potentially um, uh, looking to go back into the pig space in a different under a different model, the other thing that, that this um, chap that I spoke to uh, had had outlined too that there's a had been a, a big uh, appetite uh, for some for some of those smaller scale operators rather than going back into the pork space if they if they were infected with the virus and had to cull pigs. Um, instead of going back into the pork space, they look to transition across into chicken uh, because it's you know it's seen to be a a, um, a more safer option that you're not going to lose your flock of chicken. But you know, until it's, you get bird flu, exactly. <laughs> so I was just going to say it wasn't that long ago that we had the uh, avian uh, uh, H1N1. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I mean, you know, there's probably still some memory in some parts of Southeast Asia around what no, happened it's there. Still an issue in China in terms of actually importing of chicken products. Mm. They only import cooked products, and in terms of even getting stock for breeding, there's only a couple of countries in the world to accept them from, and that is Poland and New Zealand. Mm. And Poland has a swine flu risk, mm. and New Zealand have next to nothing in terms of volume of uh, breeding stock to actually send. Mm. So I guess that's you know in, over the long run, uh, and certainly in the, in the immediate can, future, that's not going to be. They can increase, but it's going to take. It's time. not going to be a, a quick fix, no. So especially to get quality, they can breed. But not necessarily get the quality that you would expect from a commercial yeah. operation. I think I think at the moment, given the size of that deficit, quality is less of an issue. And it's more about just getting the quantity to feed to feed the hungry mouths. Well, maybe the Chinese government will move to uh, beyond burgers and <laughs> soylent green. So, uh, well, do you want to summarise it, Matt, and then we'll. We'll come to a close. Uh, yeah, look, I think um, a couple of key messages to take away. Like we've said, that uh, the, there's no cure for this virus. It's not harmful to humans. Um, it's going to have a big impact, and is already having a big impact on global um, protein demand. And it's going to spill over into demand as well for for grains and feed feed products. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is just the beginnings. Um, so you know, strap yourselves in and just watch what develops over the next few years. And and let's hope that it doesn't get into Australia. Let's enjoy the opportunities while they're here, and when we get the rain at least. So thanks listeners for uh, taking the time to listen to this today. Uh, if you can do us a big favour, give us a like on wherever you listen to this podcast, leave a review and share it with your friends and family and uh, have a good time, stay safe and we hope you enjoyed listening. Bye-bye.